One of the things that I'd like to say at the outset, this is just the next step in our discussion regarding who we are as men of God. And the very next section, if you're following the outline of what we do when we study each of these Tuesdays, is just to go to the very next topic that's listed. And that topic, of course, is sin, evil, temptation, dealing with that as men. And I would think that one of the ways that Scripture becomes so clear to us and clarifying to us is often some of the saints, particularly of old, who have dealt with the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of, of temptation. And I could look no further than our brethren that we call the Puritans for help in this area, because I think probably in the whole of church history, the Puritans are the best in this area. Now, it could also be said to be true that because they're the best, they're also the worst because they do give us a picture of ourselves as they looked at themselves. And when we look that, uh, that much at our sin, it can be so discouraging because that sin is so ever before us, particular sins, particular temptations, but if we can work towards saying to ourselves, it hurts so good, that we are looking at areas that we would probably otherwise like to stay away from. We'd like to be able to say, yes, I, I know that I sin. Even as a regenerate person, I sin. It's, um, it's hard to look at. It's hard to face the mirror. But face it, we must, because this is, this is an area in which we can not only work diligently to deal with our own sin, but we can learn from the scripture and through these godly men, the Puritans, to be able to, in a strange sort of way, look at our sin, see it for what it is, and then for the first time begin to deal with it with a, with a spiritual uh, fortitude, uh, a spiritual commitment that really allows us through the discouragement of seeing in the mirror of God's word our sin, but to be able to see it in such a way that it's so clear to us what we must do. It's so clear to us how, how we must fight. And to be able to do that actually brings us great joy and great encouragement when we're fighting such sin. So it's it's seemingly uh, a conundrum. How, how, do I, how do I look so deeply into that regenerate but, but sinful heart of mine and to be able to be encouraged at all? But we can be encouraged. In fact, we should. We must be encouraged with how we are dealing with God's work in our lives because this is his work. And through all the joy and through all the laughter and through all the, the good times and the positivity of that which he's blessed us, including our families, wife, children, fellowship in the body, 
great blessing, uh, financial support, all of the things that sort of keep us going and keep us encouraged, so can the idea of dealing with our sin be encouraging uh, in a uh, strange sort of way. Because we're dealing with the, the topic of how to overcome evil and temptation. There are probably three books that I would commend to you just from my own study uh, from the Puritans regarding this idea of overcoming evil and temptation. And two of them come from our elder brother, John Owen. John Owen, no S on the end, John Owen. And I wanna commend to you two books that the Banner of Truth and praise God for the Banner of Truth Trust for all these years of faithfulness, they have given us what I would encourage you to read. I wouldn't necessarily commend, though if you wanted to slog your way through it, uh, God bless you as you attempt to try to understand uh, the English of the 1600s. Um, and the Banner of Truth has those publications of John Owen. But I wanna commend a couple of books that I've actually uh, brought that I want to show you that the Banner of Truth has also done in what I would call a compact form and it's actually a brother named Richard Rushing Richard Rushing who has gone through John Owen's book The Mortification of Sin The Mortification of Sin and he has abridged it and made it easier to read in modern English and the Banner of Truth has published it that's what it looks like. It's one of those Puritan paperbacks. And this one is blue in color. I like this one because it gets right to the point. It takes that old English and it brings it into uh, our common English that we can readily understand. It's extremely easy to read. Uh, there, there are not issues for which you and I would have to have uh, a good old English dictionary beside us as we read to look at uh, some of the words and say, I have no idea what that word means. And this particular book, edited by Richard Rushing, I find very, very helpful. I also find helpful that the same publisher, The Banner of Truth, has taken this particular copy of Richard Rushing's abridgment of The Mortification of Sin by Owen, and a university evangelist with Reformed University Fellowship has his name is Rob Edwards. He has taken this book, now only this one, not, not the, the larger John Owen paperback, but this one, and he's created a little study guide out of it. I find that also very helpful. This particular little book called, like the title of this book, The Mortification of Sin, it's a study guide for John Owen's mortification. And if you can see this close, I'm just personally going through it and I'm just reading the book, though I've read it before, I wanna read it in this edition, and I'm just going through it myself and making my own little study guide. I'm just writing out the answers to the questions that are posed to me in this little, this little booklet. And I'm just doing it personally. Now, of course, you can do it together. Uh, you could probably, if you had the time and desire to maybe huddle together in a group of two or three or four guys and be able to go, it, to go through it together just as you are 
good friends and, and you want to do that. Uh, if you've got, for instance, teenage children and you want to go through it with them, or even adult children, a couple of sons or daughters that you would like to go through it, maybe in a way that captures how all of you think, uh, even as you were raised in a family where you as dad were uh, wanting your kids to, to see and to grapple with sin and temptation, this would be a great little study. And so I commend it to you. This is something that I think is one of the gifts of the banner of truth to, to keep these volumes alive for us so that we can just tap uh, on uh, a mouse and be able to send it uh, to ourselves within a day or so and get these resources. I commend it to you. The same brother, Richard Rushing, also did with John Owen's book on temptation the very same thing. So here's the mortification of sin, mortification, the killing, the destroying of, of sin, the, the battling, the grappling with it. This is called temptation resisted and repulsed. Resisted and repulsed. And again, it's abridged and made easy to read by Richard Rushing. I've, I've thought about this brother, whoever he may be, and I thought, what a spiritual exercise to take the larger treatises of Owen's mortification of sin and this matter of temptation and to work your way systematically through it, to rewrite it in such a way that it abridges the larger and what a spiritual exercise to be able to be Richard Rushing, Rushing working his way systematically through it so that this could be presented to us. I do not believe there is a booklet, a study guide booklet for this particular volume. I haven't been able to find it. Uh, so I, you can see how thin those are, very, very thin. And uh, it's not really even just very, very small print either. The print is, is pretty much um, commensurate with the, the, the book itself in terms of its typeface. So I would encourage you on those. And then a third book, I don't have it with me, but the third book, and you'll hear me quote from it uh, as we go along, and that is another Puritan named Thomas Brooks. Thomas Brooks. And it probably is, from my study of the Puritans for, I don't know, 40 years now, has been Thomas Brooks' book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Now, isn't that a great title? Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Thomas Brooks. It's another Puritan paperback. I commend it to you. I think it's uh, a tremendous volume. And I think you would, again, uh, repay your efforts at studying this particular topic uh, through not only what we're going to talk about today in terms of the biblical passages, but seeing how these other brothers take some of the same passages and uh, make very, very good prose out of dealing with these subject matters, sin, evil, temptation. So I want to commend those books to you. And I'll share with you a couple of quotes out of here, maybe even more than just a couple, so that you can get the flavor of what they're writing 
and how picturesque that writing is. They use so many illustrations from botany, from life, from just seeing certain things in our world and talk about it using sin as the subject matter. So what I want to do this morning in the time we have, I think we're going to uh, 9 or 10 this morning, aren't we? So in the time that we have, I'd like for us, that is myself and, and James, because we work here, so that's, that's who will be the guys left, you know, by the time we finish. I want to talk about 10 things, 10 things. The first five are on overcoming evil, overcoming evil. Five principles, five ways that I think, as I've studied this subject, that have been very, very helpful to me, and I trust will be very helpful to you as well. And then we'll move into five things, five ways, five means to resist and overcome temptation. All right, so just a very, very clean, clear, crisp outline, five means to overcoming evil and five ways to overcoming temptation. Now I say easy, uh, easy to remember, very hard to do, very hard to do. But I do believe that again, this will repay your understanding and study of how to truly overcome these matters, evil, sin, and also temptation. Now, I'm also going to give you, you know, probably 150 verses, as is my habit. Um, I would encourage you that even if I just read the passages, now sometimes we're going to go right to the passages, but I want to read these passages or at least uh, reference them, and I want to encourage you to write them down. Uh, if you don't have a pen or pencil with you, certainly you can use your phone, um, you can type it in so that you have the passages and that you can look at these passages later. We're going to try to go fast, and I don't want to frustrate you, but you know, if we've got 10 uh, things we want to talk about, uh, it can be frustrating because we're going way too fast, and you're going to look to your neighbor and say, okay, what was that passage again? And So try to do your best to, to keep up so that we can maximize our time together. So let's talk about, first of all, these five means to overcoming evil. Five means to overcome evil. And this is such a valuable subject, such a needed subject, because if we can right out of the chute, right out of the gate, be able to, to see what the evil is that lurks in our human heart, saved though we are, to be able to deal with it and to have in our minds a battle plan of means to overcoming evil. And here's the first one. Here's the first one in these five means of overcoming the evil of this world. And I mean particularly just generic evil, generic sin, but then how it impacts us. And the first one is this, you and I overcome, this is the first means, we overcome evil with good. We overcome evil with good. Now that's plain, that's simple, that's to the point, but that is a major thoroughfare in which we must commute in the overcoming of evil, is to overcome evil with good. So if you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, you see this so clearly 
outlined for us in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21. 17 to 21. Romans 12, 17 to 21. Here's the simplicity, brothers, of Scripture. Romans 12, 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Easy to say, hard to do. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And then that capstone verse that ends both this section and elucidates our outline point here. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's our, that's our outline point. Number one. This is how you can work toward overcoming evil, by overcoming evil with good. Again, easy to say, hard to do. When evil is perpetrated against you, what you want to do is take revenge. It dominates your mind. This guy wronged me. I want to get my pound of flesh. I want him to be paid back. And if God doesn't do it to a degree that I'm satisfied, if he does see punishment come to this person in whatever means, but it's not enough to satisfy me, I'll take matters into my own hands. There's a tendency in all of us that when we are wronged, we want to take such vengeance upon a person so that we're satisfied that they have been given the consequences that we believe is meted out to our satisfaction. And of course, we're being told here very, very clearly and very carefully, don't do that. Why? Because of course, verse 19 says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's not what we say, vengeance is mine, Lord, I will repay, not you. Or, if I don't think you're meeting out the punishment that that person really deserves, I'll take matters into my own hands, thank you very much. And we are commanded here not to do that. Don't be defeated by evil, but overcome it with good. What, what kind of good? Well, it doesn't say here particularly, but you and I have to trust our God, trust him with the results, that if evil has been perpetrated against us, he's in charge of dealing with the person who've done, who's done such a thing to us or toward us. And if we seethe and have bitterness and anger in our hearts. We know that the New Testament is clear, not just in this passage, but in 1 Peter uh, that we've been studying. The idea of 
instead of lashing out at somebody, we instead speak a blessing. Lord, bless this person. I don't want them to hurt, though they've hurt me. I want them to be blessed. And if the right interpretation here is, is verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. You and I have our marching orders to, to be a blessing instead of someone who wants to get our own pound of flesh. So overcome evil with good. A couple of passages that I want you to write down to look at at your own leisure. We don't have time this morning to look at all of them, but Psalm 37, 27. You just write that down. Psalm 37, verse 27. And Psalm 37, 27, I'll just read it to you. You don't have time to turn over yourself. Psalm 37, 27 says, depart from evil and do good so that you will abide forever. Verse 28 goes on to say, for the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. That's verses 28 and 29. So in other words, the Lord's in control. He's in control of all this. He knows how somebody hurt you and wounded you and, and despised you despicably. He knows that. He's not, he's not sort of so busy with other matters in the world that you're being left behind in the, in the department of hurt. God knows what everyone's doing, and he knows exactly what to do about it. 1 Samuel 24, 16 to 20. 1 Samuel 24, 16 to 20. God, God knows. He, he knows how to deal with the things that are on our hearts, that are in our minds, especially when someone hurts us. And of course, brothers, we know that this can happen right in our own homes and right in our husband-wife relationships how something that either we have said to our wife or they have said to us that was very hurtful. And sometimes we have this retaliatory mindset. I've got to get her back. I've got to up the ante by, by her cruel word to me, by speaking a cruel, cruel word to her, just to sort of, you know, make sure she understands who's boss. And Romans 12 says very clearly, don't overcome any of that evil that's perpetrated toward you, but overcome that evil with what? Good, good. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse 15 says this, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always, listen to this brothers, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Seeking the good. Don't try to repay another evil for evil. This is all over the scripture. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Recent teaching, very convicting. Chapter 4, verse 14 
If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And if someone were to say, yeah, well, I, I've been reviled, so I need to take my vengeance. Verse 15, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. If you're going to suffer, suffer as a Christian in doing what is right. Verse 19, therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. You know, Galatians chapter 6 says, do good to all men. Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Do good to all men, especially to those of the household of faith. So how do you overcome evil? By doing good. I mean, it's a simple principle, boatload of passages, extremely hard to do, especially in practice. Because our immediate response so often is, I was injured, I was hurt, I don't like that, I was sinned against, this is a problem, and I've got to do something to show the person around me how much it hurt. And if I show them how much it hurt, then they're going to see the evil of their ways. And if they don't, I'll make sure that they see the, the, the ways that they have treated me. This is, uh, this is something you and I have to grapple with. Jay Adams has said this, if there is anything that counselors find again and again, it is defeated and overwhelmed people who believe that their situation is hopeless because of the evil that others have done to them. Over and over, they hear, so-and-so did this to me. My parents did it to me. My wife, my husband did it to me. My boss did it to me. Circumstances did it to me. He goes on to say, now, of course, these persons may have wronged you in any number of vicious ways. We won't dispute that. Evil doing is all too prevalent in this world. Jay Adams goes on to say, we need not question that point, but suppose they did do something to you. Suppose, for that matter, that they wronged you severely. So what is that reason for defeat? Now, there's a lot more to say there, but the idea is, if I go moping around with a defeatist attitude because of all the woes that people have inflicted upon me, I'm missing out on the opportunity to do good to those who have hurt me and receive a blessing instead. So overcome evil with good. Number two, number two, and this gets more to our hearts, more to our human hearts. Overcome evil by being innocent toward its inner workings. Overcome evil by being innocent toward its inner workings. Oh, this is so important. In other words, one of the ways that you and I can overcome evil as men, men of the home, leaders of our churches and homes, and perhaps even businesses in the social context, overcoming evil by being innocent toward its inner workings is a great help. 
It's a great help. In other words, I need to know myself so well and the inner workings of my heart that I can see almost at the very moment of the evil's approach that it's happening and it's happening in this way and I need to be ready to fight it off with these weapons. Those, those inner workings of knowing who you are, knowing your propensities, knowing your faults, knowing your failures, knowing the patterns in your life, knowing the inner workings of how you respond to sin, and then knowing particularly, and this is the point of this second uh, overcoming, and that is you have to know even sin's general inner workings. So it's you knowing you, and it's you knowing how sin generally operates. So you're knowing the outside as it attempts to come inside, and you also know yourself inside so that you can help fortify yourself for the attacks that come from the outside. So you can know from the outside in, and you can know from the inside out. Romans 16, if you're still there in Romans 12, look back at or look forward to Romans 16. Romans 16, verse 19. The Apostle Paul says there, for the report, speaking to the Roman believers in general, for the report of your obedience has reached to all. He's so encouraged by them. And then he says this, therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And certainly, I would say, not the reverse. Not the reverse. I don't want you to be wise in what is evil. And yet you say, but wait a minute, I thought you just said sin's encroaching narrative. I need to know that. Yes, but I don't need to know it experientially. I don't have to practice and doing all kinds of sins so I can know what sin is and what sin does. That would be in a great uh, Greek construction of our English phrase, that would be stupid, right? That would be dumb. That would be careless. That would be uh, presuming upon the grace of God. What I'm talking about is knowing evil, not experientially, but knowing how it often works, its inner workings. In fact, that was really the lie of the garden, wasn't it? The lie of the garden was God doesn't want you to know these things. If, he, if he's withholding something from, me, from you, it's because he doesn't want you to experience it in the good way, but that was a lie. If you, if you eat of this forbidden fruit, you will know as God knows. Yeah, well, you eat that forbidden fruit and you will know it experientially and it will eat you alive. So, you overcome evil by being innocent toward 
its inner workings. You don't have to get so close to sin without getting burned by it. And there are so many guys in the history of the world, ourselves included, who can get so close to sin because it's so tantalizing, it's so tempting that we get so close and then are overcome by it. Look in your Bibles at Proverbs chapter 6, particularly in the area, as Proverbs 6 describes it, of sexual sin. Proverbs chapter 6. I don't know if you've ever seen this passage. It's very, very stunning. You and I have to be very careful of this. It can be a part of everyone's temptation, especially as a man. Proverbs chapter 6. Notice what it says. Let's start maybe in verse 24. He gives the idea in the first uh, four or five verses from verse 20 on to verse 25 about uh, observing God's commandments. You've got to have God's word in your heart. You've got to be a memorizer and a meditator on scripture. And why? How so? Solomon says, if you are to keep, verse 24, from the evil woman, from the small, smooth tongue of the adulteress, desiring her beauty in your heart, not letting her capture you with her eyelids, Verse 26, for on account of a harlot, a seducing woman, one is reduced to a loaf of bread and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. In other words, she's not um, waiting for you. She's coming after you. She's pursuing you. Uh, she's not staying in one place. She's hunting for your precious life. And then this rhetorical question in verse 27, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? That even may, by the way, be a euphemism, fire in the bosom. In other words, when you're sexually stimulated, when you've got fire in your bosom, the rhetorical question is this, don't you realize that if that happens, you're going to get burned? Fire in the bosom, sexual desire that's unsatiated. You're, you're wanting it. You're going to pursue it. You're going to do anything you can to get it. Why? Because you want it. And will you not be burned? Verse 28, or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Those are two rapid fire rhetorical questions that have the easy answer. Well, of course you will. Of course you will. Now, what's he talking about? Well, what's he talking about? Fire in the bosom, hot coals, your feet being scorched, verse 29. So is the one who goes in to his neighbor's wife. Goes in, literally. This is the sexual act. Goes in to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. And now, brothers, from verses 30 to 35, he's going to describe the punishment. Are you ready? He says, generically speaking, to all men, about all men, verse 30, men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry. What does he mean? Well, he's going to set us up. He's going to do a comparison. And he says, look, 
If someone's there in your community and you find that he's a thief, he's stolen, but he's done so because he's so cotton pick and hungry. He, he's so emaciated, he's so hungry, so thirsty, that he believes that the only way to get his thirst assuaged, his food and his body, because he's so thin, he's so desirous of getting something to eat, that he resorts to stealing. The Bible says, you don't condone the stealing, because it's a sin, but you understand why the guy's doing it. He's so thirsty and he's so hungry that even if he thinks he's got to resort to stealing it from somebody else, he will. And the Bible says, we don't condone it, but we do understand it. That's the point. That's the point of the illustration. Look at verse 31. But when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. In other words, that's the punishment for the stealing. We get it. We understand it. But it's still not the answer in life. Stealing is not the answer. It's wrong. And when you steal, even if it's to assuage your own utter thirst and hunger, you're going to be punished. And you're going to be punished sevenfold. And they're going to take away your house. You know, read in something like this. I was so hungry and thirsty that I was willing to steal even if it meant my goods are going to be taken away from me. That's the, that's the drive of somebody who's that hungry. But you got to pay. you got to pay that. Then he says this. Here's the comparison, starting in verse 32. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He's not thinking straightly. He who would destroy himself does it. Now there's a, there's a turn right there. He's done with the illustrations. He's finished with the idea of someone who steals and he's gonna to have to pay sevenfold. You're gonna have a high price to pay. But that in comparison is nothing to the person who goes into his neighbor's wife. Because he doesn't just have to pay sevenfold his income, he's got to give up his house. It says it will cost him his life. That's a different kind of payment, isn't it? Verse 33, wounds and disgrace he will find and his reproach will not be blotted out. It's a lifetime sentence. It will dog your steps for the rest of your life. You'll not only lose your house, you'll lose your reputation, you'll lose everything if you do this. That's the point he's making. And then he talks about, in verse 34, not just your reputation and the consequences of your act, you're going to have to deal with the woman's husband. Look at verse 34. For jealousy enrages a man. What man? The other woman's husband. The man you've sinned against by taking his wife from him 
and doing only what he should be doing with her. That's the point. Jealousy enrages the jilted lover. The, the husband and he, the husband, will not spare in the day of what? Vengeance. He's after you. No wonder it's going to cost you your life. And then verse 35, he will not accept any ransom. In other words, you could come to him and say, look, I, I did the wrong thing. I slept with your wife. I shouldn't have. What can I do? How can I repay? Well, it's more than sevenfold. It's more than your house. Well, I, I can do this. I can pay you for the rest of my life. I can pay you a, a, a penalties, wages. Nope, I won't accept it. He's so vengeful about what you've stolen, the most precious thing he has, his own wife. And it says, I won't accept any ransom at all. Nothing, no price is too high for you to pay for what you've done. Nor will he be satisfied though you give many gifts. You can, you can try to give whatever gifts you want. Brother, I tell you, this overcoming evil by being innocent toward its inner workings, I'd say probably in the sexual arena is the greatest place where you and I must know how sin operates. What it does. Sin as a, as a thing, almost like this. Sin as another person. How sin operates. How he looks, how he thinks, how he acts, how he walks, how he talks. This is the overcoming of evil by knowing how sin itself works. It's got all of its inner workings. 2 Timothy 3, 12 and 13 and 14. You read those on your own. 2 Timothy 3, 12 to 14. And Philippians 4, 8. Those are just a, a few. And of course, I've just taken you over to Proverbs chapter 6. You're going to have hot coals. You've got to know if you were to say to yourself, look, I understand that if I go out and I pursue sexual sin, I'm going to get burned. I'm going to get burned. So I got to know that up front. I got to know all the inner workings of what sin does, especially sexual sin, so that I will not be burned by this thing. I got to know how it operates, how it thinks, how it talks. And of course, what happens in the book of Proverbs? In both chapters 5 and chapters 6 and chapters 7, there are large sections of those three chapters of Proverbs that talk about sexual sin. And it, and it rolls itself in our minds as we read it. We think of scenarios. We think of situations. And it's warning us. It's helping us. It's mapping out. This is what she does. She wears this wonderful lipstick and, and she smells so good. And she's there looking through the lattice uh, at someone that she can hoodwink, someone that she can manipulate. And here is this guy coming down the street. He's not supposed to be there. He's not supposed to be walking that way, but he is. And then she speaks sweet nothings into his ear. You're so good looking. You're so successful. See, that's the inner workings of sin. That's what sin does. It lures you via a surprise attack. Third area. Third area. Overcome evil by an unwavering reliance upon Holy Scripture. 
Overcome evil by an unwavering reliance upon holy scripture. Do you remember in Romans 12, 2? You know, of course, we know Romans 12, 1, that mercies of God, that you and I are to be living our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. But then verse 2, it says that you can know the will of God by testing. Testing. Great word there. It's the word dakimas. And dakimas is borrowed uh, from the area of work that we would call the one working in that area an artisan. An artisan. You're working with uh, metals, precious metals, and you're burning the dross off of those metals so that what can come through the heating process is pure gold, precious metals. It's a, it's a kind of procedure that they had back then, of course, that when they heated something up to a fever pitch, all of those impurities were burned away, all the dross. And what came forth was, was the purity of the gold, the silver, the precious stones. That's our word right there that by testing you may know what the will of the Lord is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Why is that important for us? Because Scripture is said to be fired in a furnace seven times hotter than any artisan could make it. And it comes to us, comes forth as pure gold. Psalm 12. That's, that's something I can bank on. It has been tested. It has been refined. And it is holy scripture for which we can be holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy reliant. Holy reliant. That means you and I must know the scripture so well that it is our chief means of grace to overcoming evil. Our chief means of grace. You know, as I was driving in, as I've mentioned before this morning, I'm praying out loud, I'm praying to the Lord. And I don't want it to just be a one-way communication. I'm, I'm talking. I'm talking out loud. I'm talking to the Lord. But at the same time, as I'm even praying my own prayers back to him, verses are flooding to my mind. Even as I'm praying about specific things, verses are coming to me. And I'm assuming because I've already read those verses, in some cases studied those particular verses long and hard, it's a two-way communication. It's scripture that's coming to my mind. It's the Lord helping me as I communicate to him he communicates back to me only and exclusively through his word. And when he does, he gives me a sense. Though you have to be careful that you don't take verses out of context or you do your sort of cherry picking of verses. And even when they come to your mind, you and I have to run them through the grid of good interpretive tools, good ways of seeing certain scriptures, not just taking one and sort of cherry picking it and taking it out of its context. But if you get better 
at reading your Bible and understanding your Bible, and that's what preaching can help you with, and that's what your own study of Scripture can help you with, so that when you do have the right verses in the right context and you're praying to the Lord and those passages are coming to your mind, he's illumining us so that we could have this two-way dialogue so that I can say something like this, Lord, I don't want to sin in this way. This, this sin is dogging my steps. It's at the ever ready to destroy me. Help me, Lord. Help me. I need your help. I need the power of your spirit, and I need the power of your word, and I need the power of godly friends around me so that I am saying I want to overcome evil by a holy dependence upon your word. Speak to me, Lord. Grab my attention through your word. Number four, number four, overcome evil by keeping yourself under the control of the Holy Spirit. Overcome evil by keeping yourself under the control of the Holy Spirit. I mean, this makes sense, doesn't it? Right after we've talked about overcoming evil by an unwavering reliance upon Holy Scripture, we have the Word and we have God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to keep us under His control. Holy Spirit isn't an it, but a person, a Him, God the Spirit. 1 John 4, 4. 1 John 4, 4. We need to know the Spirit. Why? Because sin is in the world. Yes, it is. But God... The Holy Spirit is greater than the sin in the world, right? 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We need to be kept under the conscious, ever-present, moment-by-moment control of the Holy Spirit. How do you do that? By walking in the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, particularly verse 16. And again, like I told you, I'm just flooding you with these verses so that you can look at them at your leisure. Galatians 5, 16 says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Because the flesh and the Spirit are in utter opposition to each other. The Spirit, as I walk in Him, is helping me through that walk to not gratify the desires of the flesh. I, I need that so that I'm overcoming evil in that way. Proverbs 15, 1 to 4. Proverbs 15, 1 to 4. Trust in the Spirit. And then, of course, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 28 to 30. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit? By doing the opposite of what the Spirit of God has revealed in His Word that we must do, that we should do at any one point, particularly about encroaching evil. So how do we do that? Well, chapter 5, verse 18 of Ephesians tells us how to be controlled by the Spirit. Do not be overcome, overwhelmed by something like the wine drink. That's the 
That's the comparison he gives or the contrast. Don't be overcome by wine, for that is drunkenness. But be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Be walking in the Holy Spirit because you are living in the sphere of the Spirit. See, we, we don't talk about this much and we don't understand it probably as much, especially here in the West when we're, we're so individualistic in our Christianity. But remember, the Bible talks right there in Ephesians, particularly in verses 4 and 5 and 6, about how we are to combat evil together, together as a group, as a local church, as a band of brothers. And how do we do that? By seeing how the Spirit operates in the sphere of His promises and His principles. Because remember, the Spirit is the one who actually inspired the Scripture. He wrote through godly men the Scripture. And so to, to walk in the Spirit and to avoid, to overcome the dictates of the flesh, the sinful acts and thoughts of evil men, that world, the world of the flesh, the Spirit of God who has inspired the Word of God is allowing us to understand how to walk in His dictates, in His sphere, the way He lives, the, the realm in which you and I live as professing believers, as Spirit-controlled persons. And when we are Spirit-controlled, we are asking the Lord constantly, protect me from the evil one. Protect me so that I don't follow the dictates of the flesh. That's how I overcome evil in that way. Number five, overcome evil with a vibrant, robust faith. Overcome evil with a vibrant, robust faith. First John, first John chapter five, verses one to five is definitely a go-to passage in this regard. Chapter 5, verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our Faith, who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That, that word faith there, our faith, it's a, it's a vibrant, robust, growing, maturing faith that overcomes evil in this world. The evil that lurks at every turn in our world to destroy us to make us think that we can't overcome, that we're almost obligated to sin in certain ways as patterns because we just have done it so much. We've done it so often. I can't get off the treadmill. I, I can't say no to this. It dogs my steps, whatever sin it might be, whatever pattern it might be. 
And one of the ways that you can combat that is to overcome the world by having this living, vibrant, growing, mature faith that God can help you, that God can be trusted, that God knows the plan to break the cycle. That's what we're talking about. Now that's very quick. I could give you other passages in that regard. Hebrews 10, 32 to 36. 1 Peter 1, 6 to 9. Those are passages that talk about this. But I want to turn the corner and I want to talk about that second little section that I mentioned to you, five ways to overcoming temptation. Five ways to overcoming temptation. I'm going to go as fast as I can. If we have time for questions, we can try to answer those. But this is, I think, very, very important for us. One of the reasons why I want to talk about this is I've just talked about overcoming you know, the evil and the sin of this world, whether it's evil outside of us or the evil of our own heart. But I want to talk also about ways and means that we're tempted to do evil, though we haven't yet sinned. We haven't yet done the sin, but we are tempted to do the sin. How do we, how do we take the temptation to sin before we've sinned, the temptation to sin before we've sinned and know its inner workings so that we can say no to sin instead of sinning and then confessing the sin because we haven't learned to overcome the sin and we've already done the sin. This is how do you actually stop sin at the door so that even in the temptation you can understand it so as to be repulsed by it. To, to say to it, get away. Don't come around here. I'm not going to be tempted by that. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to fortify, fortify myself so that I can say no to sin before even at the crouching of the door, I open the door and let him in. Whatever sin this is. This is what we're talking about here with these, these ideas. And by the way, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, in a context about the Corinthians refusing to forgive a certain man in the body who has repented. He wants their forgiveness. He longs for their forgiveness, this body of believers in Corinth, and that for some reason they're refusing to forgive him. And Paul is chastising them. And he says, rather than refusing to forgive, you should throw a man a party. You should be rejoicing that he's repented. And then he says this. He uses that as an example, and then he widens himself into an elastic term that is universally understood and important, and it is this. If you are refusing, using the example of the forgiveness of sin, if you are, if you are refusing to forgive this brother this particular sin, you're giving Satan a foothold, and I'm telling you, you are not doing what most Christians are by the name Christian supposed to do and should live in and know, and that is this, the schemes of Satan. I think you've been hoodwinked. I think you've been deceived. I think you've been cornered. And he says, 2 Corinthians, you can read it, 2.11. I don't want you to be ignorant of his devices. 
his disguises, his ways. I would think that one of the plagues of 21st century evangelicalism in the West, particularly in the United States, is that we are ignorant of his schemes. We don't know how he operates. And, and we're already sort of, in a sense, lost in the battle because we're not up on what he does, how he operates. Now, again, it's counterintuitive because the idea is, look, Lance, you're telling me that the, the Apostle Paul is saying, don't be ignorant of his schemes. And Paul says, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that you are because of what you've done to this man. I don't want to know the, the schemes of Satan myself. I don't want him anywhere around. I don't want to know him. I don't want to see him. I don't want to experience anything that he's involved with. Yeah, so it's a bit counterintuitive. Uh, I fear, he says, you're, you're ignorant of his schemes, i.e., don't be. But you and I, in a sense, counterintuitive as it may be, need to know how Satan operates so that when it comes against us, we say, ah, that's a scheme of, of, of the devil right there. I'm not going to fall to that because that's the way he often works, right there. And I'm going to give you five of these. Number one, number one, Satan will tempt you to deceive, uh, will tempt you to sin by first deceiving you. That's number one. That's the, that's the first way that you will not be ignorant of his devices, by his deceiving work. This is what he does. Satan's primary tool, I think, is to deceive believers into thinking that sin is something other than what it truly is, sin, by labeling it something else than sin. Maybe a highfalutin, wonderful-sounding kind of phrase, terminology, that doesn't have sin on it. I mean, if you and I are believers and we're supposed to stay away from sin and we've got a, a box in front of us that someone has given to us as a gift and it says, essence of strychnine, poison, open and ingest and enjoy. Oh, I'm going to ingest strychnine and I'm going to enjoy it. We are not stupid in that way. We know that strychnine is poison. You drink it and you die. So what does Satan do? He deceives us by mislabeling the sin. Essence of peppermint. So you open up the box. I like peppermint. I can suck it for a long while. But it's not peppermint. It's strychnine. That's the point. See, deception, that's what it is. That's the garden, isn't it? Genesis 3. You won't surely die. You won't surely die. God knows. He, he knows that if you're like him, you've got the upper hand. He doubted God's word. He denied God's word. He denounced God's word. The deception was there, and it obviously worked. It obviously worked. And of course, you and I might say, well, see, that's the problem. They, they apparently just didn't see it for what it was. I could... I could pick that out from a mile. Well, probably not. They were perfect. They'd never sinned. They'd never encountered something like that. They were perfect. They were sinless. 
They had the ability to sin, of course, and they did. You and I, we've been sinning a long time. We're not as keen as we think. So you and I have to be ready and we have to make sure that this deception doesn't meet us at the door clothed as something else. Listen to Thomas Brooks, that book that I told you about, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Satan knows that if he should present sin in its own nature and dress, the soul would rather fly from it than yield to it. And so he presents it to us not in its true colors, but painted over with the name virtue, that we may be more easily overcome by it. That's so true. We've got we've to figure it out. It's got the wrong label. We've got to figure out how to do it. Well, I've got a few biblical defenses about this idea of deception. Number one, this is under this first point. Number one, recognize that sin, regardless of how it's presented to you, is still sin. So pray for discernment. Pray for discernment. Remember, God wants us to be discerning about our choices, about our life, about what we're doing, about who we spend our time with, about the crowd we keep. And he wants us not to be deceived. Proverbs 26, verses 23 to 28. You can read that at your leisure. And I love this, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Satan disguises himself, how? As an angel of light. If we see an angel of light, if we see something good, it can't be poisonous. Remember I told you about those Proverbs passages about the seductress? Proverbs chapter 5, verse 8. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Because if you go near the door, you know what's going to happen. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by her lilting words. Don't be deceived by her provocative dress. Don't go by the way. Don't go by the house. She's looking through the lattice to find you. Proverbs 20, verse 17. Bread obtained, that's again that euphemism for sexual sin. Bread obtained by falsehood is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be filled with gravel. I mean, how graphic is that? I mean, it sounds good, it looks good, it seems to be good, but it's deceptively good. Thomas Brooks, when... The poison of asps stings a man. It first tickles him so as to make him laugh till the poison little by little gets to the heart and then pains him more than it ever delighted him. I mean, the Puritans were so good to take even the botany of life. I get this little uh, tingle, this little sort of soft bite and at first, it, it, it's giving me a bit of euphoria. Um, and then the more it does its 
poisonous work in me, it brings me to the pains of death. That's what he means. Keep the greatest distance between you and sin, my, my brothers. And, and recognize that, that all sin, no matter how virtuous it's painted, is still sin. It's still sin. And recognize that sin is the most seductive and the most alluring and the most destructive when it appears most hidden. Because you can't see it. You can't do anything with it. It's like the iceberg. I mean, you think you can run on top of it. You're king of the mountain until you realize that the biggest part of it is submerged. It's far bigger than you. When sin is least felt, Thomas Brooks says, it is most powerful. So often when we think sin has been destroyed, Thomas Brooks says, it is merely out of sight. Sin's strategy is to induce a false sense of security as a prelude to a surprise attack. Sin always is at work in the heart. A temporary lull in its assaults means not that it is dead, but that it is very much alive. In other words, when the water is most still, it's the most dangerous. Number two, number two, and obviously I'm talking so much so as to avoid all questions. Number two, Satan tempts believers to sin by trivializing and minimizing sin, especially its consequences. Satan tempts believers to sin by trivializing and minimizing sin and its consequences. See, here's Satan's strategy. To make us believe that sin is just simply not as serious as it is. Just to take it in its most heinous construct? No. No. What, what he does all the way back in the beginning of the garden? Oh, come on, Eve. It's just a little piece of fruit. What will it hurt? Remember, remember Saul and his sacrificing, his offering those sacrifices, 1 Samuel 13? Well, I just, I didn't, I didn't see the priest around. It needed to be done. It was seemingly the righteous thing to do to, to be in the priest's place. How about Uzzah? Remember Uzzah with the cart? I mean, he was about to fall. And he just sticks his hand up there to actually steady the fall so that it wouldn't come crashing down and God's holy things then would be dirtied, soiled. But that was forbidden. And he knew that. But in the moment, the impulse was, I'm going to do this. Perhaps he might have even been thinking, right in a flash, I'll be rewarded. I'll be affirmed as having made a sacrifice to make sure that the holy things are upright. And of course, the Lord killed him on the spot. Remember Achan? Achan and Joshua, 7 to 12. Achan just took, took a little bit of the booty, just a little. And then it says that when the men went to war, they were defeated 
and a couple of thousand men lost their lives because one man took what should, that which had been banned. It was under the ban. And what happened to Achan? He died, his wife died, his children died, his livestock died, and they were all burned up at the back end of the camp for the one sin he committed. I mean, it could be something that you and I see as somewhat trivial. I mean, it wasn't really that bad. It, it didn't have a ton of circumstances and, and fall out from it. I mean, was it really that bad? Yeah, all sin, all sin is bad, all of it. Now, some of it can have greater consequences, yes. But if you and I start down the path of sin's temptation by the mindset that it's more trivial and minimal, we've already become susceptible to it. We're already on the path. So don't buy the line, the satanic line, of the trivializing and minimizing of sin. It's all serious. Number three. Here's what you and I should say that this is, this is the, the, the author of all sin, the lie that some sin won't bring more sin. That's a lie. That's, that some sin won't bring more sin. It'll all be self-contained. We can fix it. We've got ways and means that we can fix this deal, that when the temptation is, is there at the door, I can still open it, have a quickie. I call it the no one will know category. The no one will know category. I can do this. No one's around. No one really cares what I do anyway. It's not that big a deal. But here's God's answer. Numbers 3223B. Numbers 3223B. You have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. I mean, we can't guarantee that one sin will not give way to another. And if we're yielding to a lesser sin, do we think we're going to be able to withstand the greater? I mean, so you've got to take sin as it's crouching at the door, to use the Genesis 3 language, and when it's crouching at the door and there's a lilting knock and there's some sweet words on the other side of the wood, don't do it because you open the door, all kinds of sin come in. I mean, a little temptation leads to a great sin. Greater sin leads to bigger sins, which lead to greater consequences. We've got to say to ourselves, it's all a big deal. I mean, it's all a big deal. We can't elevate and accentuate just the big sins. In fact, that's number four. Number four. We deserve self-gratification. That's the, that's the problem. Our focus is on ourselves, and we say about sin and its path, I need it. I need it. It's, it's, it's going to be good. It's going to be 
gratifying. It's going to be tasteful. It's going to be scrumptious. I mean, that's what I think happened with David's sin with Bathsheba. He saw her. He looked at her. He pondered her. I mean, maybe this is not altogether true in terms of intent, but even her name, Bathsheba, she's taken a bath. He looked, he saw from the top, and he desired. And he said to himself, I just want a little self-gratification in the moment. So he went and sent for her to come. He sinned. And the Lord chastised him severely, including the death of his own son. This is, this is what I call, like that sin with Bathsheba, the casual glance category. The casual glance. Well, I just, it was just a look. It was just a peek. I mean, there's no harm in looking. I'll just take up just a little quick view. No, no one will be hurt. No, no one will know. But we've got to have a, a biblical strategy, a biblical defense, don't we? Job 31.1. I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? That's a great truth. It's a great commitment, great covenant. That's, that, by the way, is the, the phrase that's behind the uh, website protection covenant eyes. Matthew 5, 29 to 30. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. Throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of your parts, the parts of your body, perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. I mean, but I just want just a little self-gratification. And this, this doesn't have to be, of course, sin, uh, sexual sin. It could be I just want my family to appreciate me a little bit more so I can sort of manipulate the circumstances so that they will say, Dad, you're great. You're wonderful, the best. And so I curry to that favor. And sometimes we're actually manipulating everybody around us to say such wonderful and nice things about us. And, of course, we've lost our reward because we're manipulating them into doing what we want them to do, and that's to speak so well of us. You're the greatest dad. How about this? I call it the you-can-handle-it category. You can handle it. I mean, look at all the, the ways and the means that I have at my disposal. I can handle this. I don't need to come here this morning and try to figure out, you know, all of Satan's strategies and all the temptations and evil that I might face because I'm good. I'm good. I can handle it. I can do this. That's why 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, take heed lest you fall. Take heed lest you fall. Be like Joseph in Genesis 39. He fled. He just ran, ran out of his coat. Then she used it, Potiphar's wife, against him. I mean, you and I can't think for one minute that we can handle it. Not one minute. We've got to be on our guard constantly. 
Puritan said, sin lies so camouflaged in the darkness of the mind, in the indisposition of the will, and in the worldliness of the affections that no eye can discover it. He says, the best of our wisdom is, to but, is but to look out for its first appearances. I mean, when that temptation is, is coming and I can see it from a distance and I know particularly because of what that tempt, temptation is that I am generally susceptible to it, I got to say, be gone, Satan. I, I, I can't handle it. I can't do it. It's, it's lying camouflaged and it's going to bite me like that viper. Number five, the deception, the trivializing and minimizing of sin, the elevating or emphasizing your sin and downplaying your virtues, temptation, self-gratification. Number five, there really won't be a divine accounting for my actions. Because guess what? It's all grace. It's all God's grace. I mean, he's so gracious. I mean, yeah, the Bible seems to indicate that there will be rewards for faithfulness and there will be loss for unfaithfulness. But really, I mean, God is so gracious and he's so loving and he's so kind that I'm just not sure. I'm just not totally sure because heaven is spoken of in scripture as so wonderful and such a blessing. And the afterlife is gonna be so enriching that I think what God might be doing is he's, he's probably just sort of like your dad who's warning you to, to stay in line, to do what's right. But in the end, if I don't, I think grace is just gonna cover it all. That's a major strategy of Satan. Major. But a biblical defense, Matthew 12, 36 and 37. Jesus, the words of our Savior. And I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified and by your words you shall be condemned. Our words and our actions, Matthew 16, 27. The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense, recompense every man according to his deeds. And there's going to be an accounting. There will be for all of us, for how we lived in the body. And 2 Corinthians 5, 10, there's, there's going to be an evaluation. There's going to be a Bema seat judgment. And even how believers have lived will be, by God's design, an accounting. So we can't see sin in these ways without the effects. No accounting for our sins by God. Ultimately, some people say it's not true. It's not true. There is an accounting. God will give an accounting. He'll be, he'll be looking at us and he will say, how did you live with the gifts I gave you? How did you come to a place where you took those gifts and used them for my glory? And we're all going to say, I had some really good days. And I had some days in which I just squandered what I'd been given. And I'm going to ask for grace for sure. 
but that's a grace like Titus 2 that says the grace of God is pointing us, poking us, prodding us to live godly and righteously in the present age. It's actually a, not a, a fuel for antinomian disobedience. It's actually a fuel, a, a, a surge to say, here's more grace so that you can obey and work and will to my good pleasure because I'm working in you. So I hope these have been helpful to you, brother. They have been earmarks and standards of my fight against it, my very, very meager efforts at saying no to sin. Perhaps they're helpful to you. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would show us how to both say no to temptation right at the door. And I pray that you would hold us accountable to saying no and arming ourselves. Lord, I pray that we would take these passages of Scripture and mull over them and seek to do what is right in your sight so that you would be glorified and honored and that we would know what temptation is. We don't want to be ignorant of the devices, the schemes of the devil. And as we counterintuitively study his devices, we look and see and ponder what he does when he tries to induce us to sin. We're going to be better for it. And we're going to be so much more knowledgeable of the ways and the beguiling of Satan so that we can say no to it and yes to Jesus Christ. May it be so for your glory, your honor, and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a good day, brothers.